Happy Labor Day weekend to all of you. Good to see you all here this, uh, this morning. Uh, my name is Kondo. For those of you I haven't had the opportunity to meet, I get to serve as one of the pastors here at uh, Mission Point. And uh, this morning, I have the privilege of continuing our series that we are calling The Talk, a conversation about love and marriage and sex and singleness and dating. And really what this series is, is what I wish somebody would have told me as I was growing up. And really what this series is, is what I in turn now want my kids to know about these things as they grow up. And y'all get to eavesdrop on some of this conversation. Because marriage and love and sex and singleness Those were all things designed and created by our God, our Father. And therefore, if anybody should be talking about these things, it should be us, his children, his kids, his church. And yet the reality is growing up in the church, this was seldom spoken of. And even to this very day, I've noticed that while Hollywood and our culture in general feel absolute freedom to talk about these things at any excuse given... The church tends to be the most sheepish, the most apologetic, the most timid and tentative when it comes to having these conversations. And this is our Father's design. And so we want to take some time to lean into what is his design to figure out what it looks like to do things his way. And this morning, uh, we're going to spend some time talking about the idea of dating. And uh, before we do that, I think it is just the loving slash responsible thing for me to do by giving you a few warnings in advance. Warning number one. Of all the topics that we're going to touch on in this series, I venture to posit this will be the most frustrating. Whether you're a parent, whether you're single, whether you're a student, adult, whatever the case might be, uh, this runs the risk of being the most frustrating. And so I want to ask in advance, please stay with me. Uh, Secondly, let me just let you know ahead of time that this talk is more likely to raise tension than it is to give solutions. It's going to raise more questions than it will give answers. And so I would encourage you, please process, have these conversations with folks in your circle. And if you don't have a circle, get you a circle. It's connection month, no better time to get a circle of people with whom to process. Let me also say this. The tone of this message is going to be more negative than it is positive as we address dating. And I'll I'll talk a little bit about why that is in a few moments, because we're going to focus on negative observations about what is our common practice in dating. So, all that to say, just another uplifting Sunday at church. Happy Labor Day. So, so glad you came. Last week, for those of you who were here, we started by talking about marriage. And in talking about marriage, we unearthed what we identified as a pillar truth for this series. And that truth goes something like this. Marriage is all about Jesus. 
Marriage is all about Jesus. It exists to paint a picture of Jesus and his sacrificial love for a sinful people called the church. Jesus sacrificed his comfort, his convenience. He he, he sacrificed his his rights, his, his privileges. And ultimately, he gave his very life, laying it down so that we who did not deserve it could come rushing to life and soar into everything that God intended us to be. Sacrifice. And marriage is created to reflect that to the world and to the spiritual beings who are appearing in. It's intended to reflect that sacrificial love. It's designed to show off the way Jesus has loved his church as a couple learns what it means to sacrifice their comforts, their conveniences, their dreams, their desires, even their very lives in order to see the other person soar, to see the other person Thrive. The native language of marriage ought to be sacrifice. And what we said was that if we truly latch onto this truth that marriage is ultimately about Jesus, that marriage is ultimately about a couple learning to reflect the sacrificial, serving, selfless love of Jesus in the way they treat each other, if we get a hold of that, it is going to inform and influence the way we think about dating, the way we think about sex, the way we think about singleness. As we'll see, not just today, but in the coming weeks. The reason I think the conversation about dating is so challenging is because I wonder if we haven't lost a sense of it all being about Jesus and his sacrificial love for sinful people. And we've made it about us. Now, don't get me wrong. We have a lesser trouble believing that marriage exists to paint a picture of Christ and the church. Absolutely. But dating, nah, that dating exists to, to paint the town red. We have no idea of saying marriage is all about Jesus, but dating, mm, that's for me. And I think because we've lived that way for so long, when we start to touch on or talk about this, it's a little more tender. Now, before we tease this out a little bit, let me tell you how I'm defining dating for the purposes of this conversation. By dating, I'm talking about an exclusive romantic relationship between Two people. An exclusive romantic relationship with two people. I'm not talking about you went out to coffee or you went out for drinks one time. That's not dating. That's, that's, that's a meeting. I'm talking about a relationship in which some level of exclusivity has been communicated. I am yours and you are mine. I'm talking about a relationship in which two people say, hey, we are exclusive with each other at the exclusion of other others. That's what I am talking about. Now, let me take some time to share um, some concerns about dating as we typically practice it. By the way, let me, let me say this as a side note before we, we get into that. 
The definition of dating, an exclusive romantic relationship between two people, is not so concerned whether you're doing it for fun, whether you're doing it as a social experiment, or whether you're doing it for the purposes of finding and moving towards marriage. But in order to be extremely generous, I'm going to give the benefit of a doubt and assume that you are doing it for the purpose of moving towards marriage. Which ought to be a head-scratcher for your 13-year-old who's dating. Like, I don't know what's up with that. But uh, more on that here in a little bit. But here's some concerns with the way we typically practice this. And let me take time to share what I wish someone would have told me as I was growing up. And let me also share, in full disclosure, I would have probably ignored it had they shared it with me. But it would have been nice to know. And so let me share what I want, again, my kids to know and some of the concerns around this. And I realize there are exceptions to what I'm going to say, but not many. And again, the way I'm going to do this is by drawing a contrast um, between our common practice and the clear principles of Scripture. I want to hold these against each other so that we can maybe start to see some of the distance between the two. Okay. So, first concern um, is that dating tends to place self over serving. It tends to place the self over serving. The way we typically practice dating is fundamentally selfish by design. At the center of the whole experience is me and what I want. So, uh, the way it, it, it may play out. Boy sees cute girl. And so boy says, me. Want. Now, don't get me wrong. He's not going to actually say that out loud. And I'm sorry, by the way, if you thought what goes on in a guy's mind is prettier than that. I just PG'd it for the sake of being in church. mm, Me. Want. It is raw animal instinct. As he looks over at said cute girl. So if he happens to be the breed of guy who's courageous enough, he will go over to her, (laughs) or more likely he'll stalk her on social media. But let's give him the benefit of the doubt. He'll walk over to her and he'll say to her, "Mm, want to get to know you a little bit so maybe we could get together sometime. He'll pretty it up, don't get me wrong. But even then, what he'll say is, I want to get to know you. And can I just say, please? I want to get to know you. Now, he might mean that in the biblical sense. Hey, can we talk? All right, we're talking now. Because I want to get to know you. Let me decode that for you. Simply means I want to see if you have what it takes to make me happy. Because at first glance, mm, looks like you definitely have what it takes to make me happy. And so I want to get to know you, he says. Now, let's assume for a second she goes along with it. And she says, oh, that's so sweet of you. Hmm. Uh, Long story short, um, 
my dad, well, my dad's an axe murderer. Um, what else? Oh, I have the cutest little two-year-old. You want to see pictures? Pictures, pictures, pictures. You can see his blood rushing out of his face at this point. Um, what else? Oh, my IBS issues. The worst! Should not be eating this guac and ice cream combo right now. Goes right through me. Ah, but anyway, when do you want to get together? Mm-hmm. Something just came up. Like, literally just came up. So I'm going to go ahead and call that off because here's the way it works. I want to get to know you to see if you have what it takes to make me happy. But should I discover that you have some flaw or something that has a potential of sabotaging or something I just don't have to deal with, I'm going to give you the speech. The let's just be friends speech. Into the friend zone, you go. And then I'll move on to the next. Mm, mm, mm. Now you, you look like you could make me happy. And I move forward to the next person. Because fundamentally, the whole pursuit, the whole process is driven by me and my happiness. It is not about you. Problem with that is before we know it, people become products and his creation become my commodities. And so I scope and I scan and I swipe all in order to find the person who I think is most likely to make me happy. Do you have what it takes to make me happy? And as we enter into these relationships and we realize people are messed up and people are broken and they happen to have flaws that just don't, you know, fly well with me. Or if I happen to see somebody who shows a little more promise than the other person I saw the other day, then I move on to the next prospect. Like trying on a pair of shoes. Like test driving a car. Do I like you enough to take you all the way to marriage? Because if I don't, then what's a return policy? I might trade you in. Least for the possibility of love. What's hard about this is it flies in the face of the very virtue that defines Christian relationships. Love. The primary driver behind the way we are called to treat each other is love. It is sacrifice. It is selflessness. It is serving. Uh, look at the way Paul says it. We'll have these up on the screens. If you're an ex-Bible quizzer and you can keep up with turning pages, please feel free to do that. Jot these down so you can check um, in on them later. Um, But again, we'll have them up on the screens. But Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 says this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. What's in it for me? Or vain conceit. I'm better than you. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. And this is not up on the screen, but let me read verse 4. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the other. 
your best interest above mine. That is the culture, that is the calling of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 13, the second part of verse 5, in describing the aspects and virtues you know, of love, it says, love is not self-seeking. It's not driven by what's in it for me. It's not driven by the question, how can your life make me happier? It's driven by the question, how can my life make yours better? It's not driven by I want. It's driven by I give. Love. Sacrifice. And that makes sense because marriage exists to paint a picture of Christ and his selfless love for sinful people. And he served people. And he sacrificed himself for us. And by the way, I am so thankful that Jesus didn't date the church the way we tend to date. I'm so thankful that Jesus didn't swipe right or whatever direction when he realized, like, I have some sinful flaws that make me unappealing. I'm so glad Jesus didn't ask the question, do you have what it takes to make me happy? And I'm so glad that Jesus didn't trade me in or take me back when he realized that I had flaws and I was messed up and I was broken. I'm so glad that Jesus didn't say, ah, you don't make me happy, Kondo. You don't make me happy, so I'm going to move on. To the next one who has higher potential of making me happy. Oh man, I don't know what Jesus' dating story with the church was like. But I'm sure he put out a profile somewhere and said, I'm looking for a spouse. And I'm looking for a 10, a commandment keeper. Someone who keeps my commandments perfectly. The problem is no one measured up. No one could meet his demands. And so what Jesus did was he came down when he realized we were not compatible with him he put on flesh to become compatible with us and do what we couldn't do for him ultimately laying down and sacrificing his life for us i'm so thankful jesus didn't treat us like a product i'm so glad he didn't treat us like commodities It says in Mark 10, verse 45, that even the Son of Man, even Jesus, who had every right to, did not come to be served, but to serve and offer his life as a ransom for many. He came to serve over himself. One of the reasons I I swore off um, dating in high school was... Because I realized, A, I couldn't come up with a single unselfish reason why I kept pursuing these girls. I couldn't. It was all about me. And girls became a means to my end. And the end was, make me happy. And so I realized I was, if nothing else, doing things no differently than my friends who didn't claim to know Jesus. Now, again, I'd Christianize it, but when it's all said and done, I still had my list of all the things I wanted in a girl. I had all the list of things that I wanted if you're going to qualify. 
And then I went around measuring people against it. But it was all about what I wanted. Do you know how hard it is to selflessly serve someone when you are scoping and swiping and when when you are trying to determine if they have what it takes to make you happy? It is so hard to serve people that way. When people become products and people become commodities. By the way, Face me, tweet me, whatever. Because maybe you can think of an unselfish reason to to chase and to pursue. Um, And and save yourself a little bit of time. Well, I mean, I want to pray with, with, with her. So, and just encourage her in the Lord. Um, not her, mm-mm, not her, her. <laughs> I want to encourage her. That's great, but why do you need to date her? Why do you need to be exclusive to do that? Well, I would really rather be the only one encouraging and praying. For, I mean, help me out. If you can, hit a brother up. But would you at least consider what it looks like if you treat people with their interest above yours, with how you can help them soar? with what it looks like to put serve above self. And again, if you find out that, man, I only seem to want to serve the the, the cute ones, that should maybe tell you something. When Jesus um, speaks to us, he invites us into love. When we make it about our happiness, when we put self over serving, we miss Jesus and we misrepresent him to a world that looks at us and says, you guys date exactly the way we do. You guys use each other the same way we do. You guys shop around the same way we do. You just pretty up the language. And Jesus says the world will know that we are his disciples, not by the way we, we, we scope and, and swipe, but by the way we serve selflessly. The way we place and prioritize others above ourselves. And suddenly, imagine what the world looks like. Because this is one thing I noticed really quickly when I was a student on, you know, Christian campus at Grace. I realized, like, hmm. It's interesting. I hear a lot of I want to get to know you, but there seems to be a very unique group of girls that all the guys seem to want to get to know. And then there's a group of girls no one seems to want to get to know. Like, they don't have a story. They don't have a journey. Can you imagine what happens when serve trumps self? And all of a sudden, everybody's included because the concern is for the well-being and the soaring of everyone. Not just the people who look cute. Not just the people who seem to have promise of making me happy. All of a sudden, I wonder if the picture of Jesus selflessly loving the church doesn't come into focus a little bit more. Second concern, Um, naturally, the way we tend to think of dating and practice it is more about stealing than it is about saving. Um, Did I mention that this would take more of the negative tone versus, okay, I I wasn't. Um, 
stealing over saving. Uh, my kids have occasionally asked me if they can, you know, drive my car. And uh, my kids, for the record, are 12 and 10. And so my response is typically the same. Like, yeah, give me about 10, 15 years. And you're more than welcome to do it. But I'm telling you, if my kids decided um, when they were old enough uh, to take my car for a joyride without my permission, I'm going to venture and guess I'll be none too thrilled. In fact, I'm guessing I would lose a tad bit of my religion. I would be furious. Let alone, if my kids didn't just take my car, they decided to transfer my car to somebody else. They decided to give it away to somebody else. I would be very, very undignified over that situation. Now, if my kids came and said to me, you know, let's assume they didn't give it away. They just took it for joyride and they brought it back. And I was upset. And they said, Dad, we don't know what the big deal is. Like, we brought it back. Um, and don't know what the big deal is. Like, we filled the tank with gas. And we don't know what the big deal is. Like, we drove according to the speed limits. We even washed your car. It was dirty. We treated it really well. I would still be furious. It's my car. No one takes my car without my permission. I would have a bit of a moment, nonetheless, even if they were nice to my car. There is a legal word for taking something that doesn't belong to you without permission. Stealing. So boy sees girl, and boy says, "Mm, I want So he goes after her, and uh, eventually they decide to be exclusive. Um, And by the way, here's a PSA uh, before we we continue. I just want some of you to know, you're dating right now. You're exclusive right now. Um, uh, Just because you haven't said it doesn't mean you're not. Uh, Some of you just need a DTR, that's all. Because you're in it. You're in it. And the way you know that, by the way, is because if somebody else comes around sniffing and this person goes out with that person, you'd be furious because you'd feel like, mm, exclusive. We just haven't said it yet. So DTR already. You're welcome. But eventually these two decide, let's go exclusive. Some version of want to go steady or, hey, you know, FBO me, you know, or be mine and I'll be yours. And then the other person says, sure, I'll be yours cute. Problem, who are you and what right do you have to make that transaction? I think we've done this for so long that we have forgotten a simple and fundamental fact. It's not your car. Look at what Paul says in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. He says this, Do you not know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Look at this. You are not your own. 
you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, contrary to misconception, you do not belong to you. Right? God purchased you at the astronomical price of his son's very life. Every Christian's body and being belongs to God. So for me to look at somebody and say, "Mm, I want, let alone for me to take what doesn't belong to me and say exclusively yours, is to take something that doesn't belong to me and act like I have the rights to give it away to who I determine and who I choose. There is a legal word for when you take something that doesn't belong to you and you give it to someone else. There is a legal word for when you take something that doesn't belong to you and you keep it as if it were yours. For me to decide I will give myself exclusively to someone else is to give away what doesn't belong to me. What right do I have? No, but God, you don't understand. We drove carefully. Like we have put boundaries around it. So we only go to like a four on the one to ten scale. You know what I'm saying? And so surely you can't be upset about that. And we do our devotions all the time. And we're really, really nice to each other. We even serve together. That may be true. But the point is, it's still not yours to give away, even if you treat it beautifully. I think we've done this so much that that we think so little of the fact that I have no right to tamper with or take someone without permission from the person who owns that someone. I have no right to give away this someone without exclusive permission from the person who owns this someone. But we transact all the time like it's up to us. Will you be mine? Mm, I don't know. I'm not mine to give. Just freak a dude out sometime. I have to get back to you. Got to check with my father. No, not that one, the scarier one. Um, Let me go a, a slight step further. If God's plan for the person you're dating is to be married to somebody someday, and that somebody is not you, There is a sense in which being romantically exclusive, let alone physically expressive, doesn't just take what belongs to God. It takes what belongs to a future potential somebody. That's stealing twice. I'm taking something that's not mine, that in God's design is intended for somebody else. Look at 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. It says, I am jealous for you. This is Paul speaking to the church. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, 
so that I may present you as a pure virgin to him. Now, when we use the word virgin, um, we typically mean somebody who hasn't gone all the way to 10 on a 1 to 10 scale. That's how we use the term. I told you you'd be kid-friendly. You can explain that at home. We use it as somebody who hasn't rounded all the bases and slid into home, whatever. But here's the point. Here's the point. When the Bible uses the word virgin, that's not how it uses it. The Bible uses the word virgin, it means untouched. What Paul is saying here in speaking to the church is, I promised that you would show up to Jesus untouched by anything or anyone in only a way that he should touch you. When you start to speak about human relationships and you start to speak about marriage, what the word means is that somebody chooses to be untouched by anyone in a way that only their spouse should touch them. That's what the word virgin means. It's a far cry from the way we often use the words ourselves. And if you're not sure... Well, what do you mean touched in a way that only a spouse should touch you? Let's just say it this way. Whatever you would consider cheating if a married person did it. Whatever that is. If in whatever your dating relationship is, there is something that you would think this would be cheating if this person was married. Then you are acknowledging you are touching in a way that only the spouse should touch. The problem with dating is not just that I end up taking what belongs to God, but I end up touching someone else in a way that only their spouse should. Not just physically, but romantically. And oftentimes emotionally, something I am so guilty of. My story is one laced with this reality. And you know it. You know there is something about this because you wouldn't want someone doing with your spouse what you may be doing with a person you're pursuing or the person you're dating. In that sense, I'm stealing from a potential future spouse. So, I mean, if I showed you a video right now, I mean, I was able to show you a video and say, hey, so God gave me special revelation. If you're a single person, um, I know who you're supposed to spend the rest of your life with. I know who you're supposed to be married to. And then I showed you a video, put it up on the screen. And in this video, it's your future spouse is somewhere in Colorado sitting on a park bench, you know, just whispering sweet nothings. I am yours forever and you are mine forever and ever and ever and ever to some person who is currently dating. And they're, you know, just cuddling and maybe even a little Sunday smooch to boot thrown in there. Here's my question. Would you watch that video of your future spouse and say, I don't care. They can do whatever they want because we're not married yet. Matter of fact, they can do whatever they want as long as they want until we're married. Then no longer. They may be in a situation in which they're being hurt by their family, but I don't care because we're not married yet. Oh, she can touch him because they're not married yet. And they can make those promises because they're not married yet. No, you would look and you would say, wench. Mm -mm." And something in you would rise up and say, wait for me. 
Please don't promise her that. Don't say that to him. Please don't give that away. Oh, would you please hang on to that? Please don't freely. Something in you would acknowledge. I hope that they wait and keep. Versus give and take. I think the way we practice it disregards not just the reality of God's ownership, but the potential of this person's untouchedness. I wonder if that's something that doesn't stir the Lord's heart. By the time I was a freshman in college, um, I'd made a vow that I would not date again until I was sure this was a person God had given permission for me to spend the rest of my life with. I didn't want to get in another relationship, then out of a relationship, then in a relationship, and out of a relationship anymore. Because I'd chronically dated for years, and I'd tampered with, and I'd taken pieces of people that didn't belong to me that I could never give back. My brother and I actually went back to visit our, uh, some friends from high school in Australia a number of years ago, probably about 15 years after we had graduated. And I can remember getting word from a number of people saying, um, Conda, we have to let you know something. Um, your ex-girlfriend, yeah, her husband, who you've never met, has asked all of her friends to make sure to communicate to you he does not want you to see her at all. Ago, yeah, but they're still reaping some of the effects of promises made, decisions that you made, and things that you took that you can't give back as the effects lingered. My wife and I, um, the most devastating fight we've ever had happened before we got married, and it happened as we were talking about our past relationships, me being the primary culprit. And I can tell you what my wife didn't say. I don't care what you did. I don't care what promises you made. I don't care who you touched. I don't care what you took. I don't care who took anything from you. Whatever. As we weren't married. It's not what she said. Not even close, matter of fact, if I tell you the truth. Because what my wife would have longed for was that I would keep and hold and save And what this guy would have wished was that I would have played part in saving versus stealing what did not belong to me. And so I made a vow to the Lord because I didn't want to look at some dude in the grocery store someday and be like, oh, your wife, yeah, it was me and her. It was real. I'm just saying, you know. But anyway, she's yours now, but, you know. There was a certain legacy I was more reluctant to leave behind. I wanted to learn what it meant to heed Paul's words. Look at what he says in 1 Timothy 5. He says in verse 1, Do not rebuke an older man harshly. Sorry, John Barrett, if I've ever rebuked you um, harshly. <laughs> it's one of our elders in, in more ways than one. But um, exhort him as if he were your father. That would be weird. (laughs) But um, treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and treat younger women as sisters with absolute 
purity. Treat each other like you would a sibling whose purity you would fight for, whose purity you would protect, whose untouchedness you would roar over. And I realized that I was actually a better brother in Christ to my sisters when I stopped looking for what I could take and what I could touch and how I could impress you to get exclusive with you. And I started to think more about how I could serve and how I could play part in saving your untouchedness. If not for some future person, then at least for the person of Jesus himself. And how amazing would it be if there was a generation of men who rose up in the church and on Grace College campus, wherever, and said, listen, we intend to absolutely fight for our sisters as our sisters and play part in saving their purity instead of taking from it. And you know what the crazy thing is for us guys? When it comes time for us to look for a spouse, if that time comes, we want to find the person who was least touched And yet while we're dating and messing around, we have no problem doing the touching and the taking. But what a revolution would emerge if there was a group of guys who said, we stand to fight for our sisters, to view them as siblings. By the way, my son will acknowledge that his sister is beautiful. And he will kick your butt if you touch her. I wonder what it would look like to sure acknowledge beauty. Great. God does a good job. But what it would look like to move into this place, in this world, in which we prioritized saving, fighting for siblings, sisters for brothers, brothers for sisters, more than we think about what we can take, what we can steal, that doesn't belong to us in the first place. So evaluate your relationship. I'd encourage you to do that. Would you say, yeah, I think God, the owner, has given this permission? Or is it just you deciding you're going to give and you're going to take? And evaluate your relationships. Are you playing part in the saving portion? Are you playing part in the stealing? And I know with shame my own story. Thank Jesus for his Grace. All right. Are you breathing? Giving you a lot to talk about. Let me give you one more as we wrap. Problem with dating is that it highlights supposing over surrender. Supposing over surrender. And here's what I mean by supposing. It's when I begin with the assumption that I'm going to get married. When I actually begin with a presupposition that I'm supposed to get married, it's a God-given right. It's a foregone conclusion. The rest is just the details of how I get from here to being married. And if you're like me, then you grew up hearing when you get married. I grew up hearing, Kondo, one day your wife will be so glad you know how to hand wash your clothes. It's not true. She doesn't care. (laughs) I don't think I've ever hand washed my clothes. Whatever. But we suppose we are getting married. The only trick is filling the blank of who. And so some of you, if you're honest, you've already registered at Target. You've picked your bridesmaids dresses. You don't even have friends. (laughs) No, but it's connection month. It's a great time to meet and uh, make friends who will hopefully wear that um, that ugly dress. But um, 
you've already named your kids. You're reading what to expect when expecting. You're not even expecting a Facebook message yet. But you've got ahead of yourself. And oh man, what happens when we suppose we're supposed to be married is that we turn people into potential and into possibilities. Am I supposed to get married? Is it to you? Is it to you? Is it to you? Is it to you? And before you know it, you start to tell your friends like, oh my goodness. Dude, she said hi to me in the cafeteria. I wonder if she's the one. Oh, 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 wait a minute. She just said, what's up? She might be the one. And before we know it, we just start to look at each other with, you know, potential eyes. Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Do you know how hard it is, by the way, to serve somebody who you view as potential? Because again, you're supposed to get married. The question is just the details of is it you? Is it you? Or is it you? Here's a problem with that. When I ask somebody, why are you dating? They say, because I'm supposed to be married. How else am I supposed to find the person I'm supposed to marry? That's a lot of supposing. The problem is, who says? Take a minute. Who says? And you're supposed to be married. Says who? For something that we've made so central, for something that we have realigned our lives to run after, you would think there would at least be one verse in which God commands us, thou shalt be married. Show me. Who says? And yet before we know it, we start to live under this arbitrary pressure because a third of my life has gone by and I don't see any promise of marriage. And now I'm wondering, who am I even? You go home for fall break and your parents are like, have you met a nice boy yet? It's been two weeks. Before we know it, we realize marriage has become the priority around which everything else revolves. It becomes a thing we chase. It becomes a thing we run after. And I just want to ask again, can we pause, stop the train, get off and ask, who said? Who said I'm supposed to be married? Because what the Bible teaches is not supposing. What the Bible teaches is surrender. Full surrender. What the Bible teaches is seeking God's kingdom first. What I started to realize is I'd supposed marriage for so long that I refused to surrender. In fact, I would say if God, oh, oh, God loves me too much to ever, ever, ever take marriage off the table. I started to live in fear, like, what if God asked me to lay this down? I don't know if I could. God, I don't know if I could still serve you if you asked me to be single. The idea of singleness made me sick, like it's making some of you right now, which was the evidence I needed that there was something preventing me from surrendering everything to him, and it was the supposing that I'm to be married. You can have everything, God, but not that. Says who? Who says? Hard to paint a picture of Christ and the church when what he did was surrendered fully to God, even when everything in him screamed otherwise. Not my will, but you. Is there no other way yet not my will, but yours? Have you surrendered the supposition of marriage? Are you driven more by this supposition or are you driven by surrender? Have you ever laid it down? And we'll talk about this in the coming weeks because I would suggest if you are not willing to be single, you're not ready to be married. 
Because it means there is an area of your life that you have made more important than God. And you're going to make your spouse a savior. When it's not even something God has said, do. God does say, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Yes. But that's not a command. That's a statement of fact. Weeks after I committed to waiting, I remember the Lord doing something in my heart where I started to believe he was enough. In fact, I got to the place where I believed I would never be married, I would be single, and I started to find myself okay with that. That was a miracle of miracles. Just months before that, I would have hyperventilated at the thought. So here's what I want to say. Start with surrender. God knows best. My fear in surrendering that part was that if I surrendered my, my supposing that I would be married, God would be like, yes, and he would have my collar picked out for the priesthood and that he would have, you know, the convent for you all set aside. We believe God is going to give us a snake. Surrender is the best way to discover his best for you. Start with surrender. Have you surrendered to that? Second thing, serve like siblings, like we said. Can we ask the Spirit to give us sibling eyes for each other over self-serving eyes and see how that affects our relationships? And I want to say something, especially to parents, before we let you go. Stop programming your kids to prioritize marriage. Have your kids prioritize Christ. Do not be part of the reason why your kids are boy crazy and Jesus casual. Do not be the reason why your kids feel a deficit of worth in them if they're not dating by 16. Would you like that cute boy? How about that cute boy? Ooh, ooh, how about her? How about him? Stop that. Stop living vicariously through your kids like somehow if they're chosen by the cute boy that reflects on you. Can you imagine what would happen if there was a movement of parents and a movement of kids who supposed the things God actually prioritizes? Oh my goodness, she said hi to me. I wonder if that's an opportunity for me to point her to Christ. Oh my goodness, our paths crossed. I wonder if Jesus isn't giving me an opportunity to somehow help them soar. I believe the Lord is inviting us into something better. So I'd encourage you, invite, uh, you know, other people into the conversation. Evaluate your relationship um, as it stands. And just ask some of those questions. Are we serving as a priority? Uh, Are we helping to to save versus to steal? And are we surrendering over supposing? So Jesus, I ask that you would help us. We need you so desperately. And we pray that even the way we think about dating would reflect Jesus and his sacrificial, selfless love for the church. It's in his name we pray. Amen.